stars Bill Bixby, Patricia Sterling, and Vincent Price. Hello there, and welcome to episode 80 of the Night Gallery podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're talking about the first episode from season three. Originally broadcast on September 24th, 1972, so just over 40 years ago. The story is The Return of the Sorcerer. It's a teleplay by Halstead Wells, based on a short story by Clark Ashton Smith, and it, directed by Geno Swark, and his uh, credit on this, interestingly enough, is Gene Swark. And um, it is the first story of the new shape of Night Gary at this stage the the anthology element has now gone and we're just a cut to core single stories but at the same time this is still a story that stands on its own and stands up very strongly indeed good evening we're delighted that all of you could make it this evening because we have something special on tap of the occult it's customary to preoccupy ourselves with witches and too infrequently we dabble on the male side of that time-honored profession the sorcerer on display here is a painting showing the natural habitat of this species of black art practitioner dark alley murky light a few sundry skulls and the gentleman himself on the right of the picture with the upraised hand and the funny little goat horns yes indeed this is a sorcerer and for those of you who disbelieve his existence, we invite you to check this out for a little while. Our painting is called The Return of the Sorcerer, and where better place for him to return than right here in the Night Gallery. Bill Bixby is a, uh, a man applying for a job as an Arabic interpreter. He's, uh, his character is called Noel, Noel Evans. And, um, and Evans is at the house of a man called John Carnby, uh, who's played by Vincent Price in fantastic form. And uh, Fer, a woman called Fern, who's a uh, Tisha Sterling. And he applies for the job as a, uh, as, a, as a translator for Carnby. Carnby is a man who's massively into the occult. He's, he's fascinated by it. It dominates his views. And... He uses numerology to try and get a feel for this guy, and because he's so good, even though the numerology he sees makes him appear to be poor and uninteresting, he still goes for him. One of the reasons for this is because applicants, two applicants have already left the job because they've been scared of what they've been translating. But Evans's head has been turned by the fact of $750 a week for a living job to translate the text. The text is part of an ancient version of the Necronomicon, and it was um, it's an element of which that hasn't been translated before. What has driven Carnby to um, to change it and to, to check and see what those texts says and what dominates his views, apart from obsession with the occult and black magic, is also that his twin brother is dead. And that information has been enough to drive him forward and make him interested in what this text says to the point, possibly, of obsession. Bips, um, 
Evans Bixby uh, plays Bixby play in Evans works really hard to try and decipher the text and finally finds out and he finds out some interesting points one is the point that and he's very worried about it the fact that because of the text the text says that whoever translate this Arabic and this is the reason why two people have left already the reason why you translate it is that May he who reveals the secret be flayed slowly over burning coals and then thoroughly dismembered. A warning, a damning indictment of what can happen for that person. By all the dark powers of this world, may he who reveals this secret be flayed slowly over burning coals uh, and, and then thoroughly dismembered. Well, it's been quite an evening. I think I'll leave now. Fine. Don't you feel as if there's some hidden horror in this house? Once the text is deciphered and all the information is given, Carnaby gives out far more description of why he's so keen on it and why he's so obsessed with his brother. The reason was that he murdered him. He dismembered his body and buried the parts, except for his head, which he kept in a cupboard. There's banging, and it keeps on distracting um, Carnaby. And... Bixby becomes more and more obsessed by it. Eventually, he opens a door to see dismembered parts of, of Carnaby's twin brother slowly coming together as if to become back to one whole and create again his dead twin brother. Unsurprisingly, Noel freaks and says, to, listen, I've had enough of this. I'm going to you know, I'm going to leave. Carnaby tries to calm him, but probably not in the best way he can. Carnaby says that the reason why he did it wasn't because of any reason that was that was particularly wholesome. It's because of Fern, who was obsessed by black magic. Now, I haven't mentioned before, but before this scene, Fern has sat with Carnaby and Evans together in a room with a goat, which apparently is his father, the embodiment of his father. And also, Fern had made moves on Evans, and obviously there was a romantic tryst there with the young woman. And basically, Carnaby says, um, I hated him because his magic was stronger, but Fern, she caused it. She wanted to be stronger than both of us. The woman is insatiable. She taunted me by loving him, felt power over both of us. The omnipotent Fern leads Carnaby, slack and defeated. And towards his eventual doom, a black mass that will obviously include his dead twin brother. And he's broken. And uh, our man Evans, Noel Bixby, basically runs upstairs, grabs his stuff, and makes an ex tries to make an exit, or believes he wants to make that exit. 
we go to the black mass ceremony there is satan satanic chanting and the appearance of carnaby's brother gray and half dead with a saber in his hands ready to enact his revenge defeated and, and upset john carnaby puts his head down ready and willing to accept his punishment for the betrayal to his brother and he and we though we don't see it he's obviously dismembered Noel comes in the room um, and but there's no real sign of any struggle or any blood there's just Fern left looking at him expectantly talking to him and she says to him that the mass is over you're unfortunate you've missed a fantastic show and then she starts flirting with him again she puts her arms around him and tells him not to leave to stay and that to stay the night at least and promises him the things that you would imagine in this situation that possibly the alarm bells would be going off in your head but you think no 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 i'll stay i'm sure this will be absolutely fine and Evans decides to stay, but not before asking her if whether she thinks the prediction, the curse, is actually true. You're too late for mass. I'm sorry you missed it. It was far out. The brothers are together again. Fragmented, but together. Oneness is all. Let's go to my room. You wouldn't want to leave me on a night like this, would you? I mean, not after everything that's happened. translated the passages from Arabic with fire and dismemberment. You don't suppose there's anything to that, do you? So dismissive, Fern, who's incidentally played by Tisha Sterling, says, of course not. Don't you worry about that. Merely a, in fact, not even that much, a wry smile and leads Arman Evans almost certainly to a very very sticky end that's coming to him very soon um, what a wonderful story first off and a great opener for a new season first off you have to say Vincent Price I mean Vincent Price first worked with Gene Swark um, when it was um, Class of 99 and Class of 99 I think was a very different portrayal for him Class 99, he was uh, very up upright, the teacher. And if you haven't seen that episode, I recommend you go and see it. It's currently on YouTube, but though obviously these things we can't guarantee it is forever. Also, it's on Hulu and indeed on DVD. If, if, if you know, if you're in America for Hulu, but also if you're um, if you're outside of the US, elsewhere you can get it on Region Two, a uh, Region One, sorry, DVD. But you know, with this, I would say, although Swark disagrees, I think it's quite a uh, 
a role you would imagine Price to be in. Although he plays very much at the end of Victim, he's very much a man who is obsessed with macabre games and, and the violence and, and the hatred that comes with that. Um, it's a he's a he's a, he's a obviously again. I mean, you know, I, we spoke about this in class of '99. The sheer love that comes every time you mention Vincent Price's name, a gentleman, a scholar, well-read, well-educated, and, and, and a true a true artist when it comes to uh, creating quite dark, macabre men, but also a genuinely nice guy. Um, he is um, he's wonderful in it. To be fair, the interaction with him and Bixby's great as well. Bixby's quite standoffish, and uh, is introduced basically as a bit of a square to use uh, an old school term and um, you know he, he portrays that role very well you know looking over his glasses staring out trying to grasp what's going on a, a man who is um, a bit of a coward really but um, when it comes to Fern showing a bit of interest uh, he can't hold back from his emotions and, and goes for it full blooded I would say and um, as well, Tisha Sterling's um, work is superb. She's given not the best piece in the script. I mean, you know, you could say it's a freehander, but if you include the goat, it's a forehander. Um, and and she she does really well with what she's got. She has a a character who is not brilliant in truth. He is she, you know, she kind of talks in a bit of hippie-ish speak, and it's not as bad as something like Miss Lovecraft sent me going all the way back to the start of season two. But at the same time, it's not the best uh, character, you know, it's not the best characterization in the world. I think the things that work really well about it is just the, the way the tone is set. I mean, we spoke last week about the way NBC uh, wanted something that was ho- more horror-based. And I think this is probably the best combination of the two issues with Laird trying to do something that is kind of old school in its style. I mean, this is based on a story from the 30s. But also a story that is, you know, quite in itself horrific. The the set and also the uh, the getting of Vincent Price indicates almost a love for the, you know, for me it looks like the, the work that Joe Alves did was almost to make it look like a, an Atticus production, if, if you know that uh, that old British kind of second tier horror house as it were, I mean that's harsh to say um, there's lots of deep reds, heavy oaks, I mean you know people walk across rooms with massive flipping pentagram in the middle and um, they really make an effort to try and crank up that horror, um, in the Black Mass they actually recite genuine satanic worship. I mean, obviously, Satanism is a nonsense. I mean, you know, you've no, it has no place in the modern world. But um, at the same time, to take that stuff and use it, I mean, those words obviously have a power if you give it a power, and I, and I think they, they, they force that power through it. And, you know, let's not forget as well, it's a story that has lots of close-ups of a goat at a dinner table which kind of increases the crazy elements to it it's it's quite a lot going on it's it's a little bit mad but done in a in a great way there is um 
it's not a story with a great deal of humanity or character development, but it's a, sto a story with a, its tongue in its cheek. And uh, it does it quite well. And obviously, the thing, the story for me personally that stands out is the scene when Bixby opens the door and there's those two, the, the hand moving and the foot moving. And you won't be surprised to hear, obviously there was no CGI trickery back in uh, 72. It was done with fish and wire. And um, it's a shocking thing. I mean, it works really well. I mean, it's a strange and unusual and quite, quite funny sight to see. But it's uncanny. And, it, and, and, and considering what they're working with, I think they do a great job with that. It's a good trick anyway. So it's crazy, but it's a little odd. Just to um, give you kind of the tie-in with like, you know, because it stands out on its own as being something a little different, a little unusual. But um, in truth, I think it probably works within the night girly theme, and not only because it's about black magic and that kind of thing. I mean, the tone itself, I would say, is slightly different. I think this is an indication, possibly, of where NBC wanted the series to go. Like, grim, short, dark horror tales. Maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek, which obviously helped Laird along. But also, I mean, you know, it will have, Laird will have nodded it through simply because of the fact that it's the first story that ties in with H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos. Um, Return of the Sorcerer was a short story by Clark Ashton Smith, which was first published in Strange Tales and Mystery and Terror back in September 1931. And um, I think it works well in terms of... It's a good story anyway. I mean, you know, it's not quite as overwrought. It's, it's not massively overwrought. It's just like all the best anthology stories. It's slightly knowing, but also willing to embrace the terror. Um, randomly, and this is on a, on a, on a slightly different note, um, in 2010, there was a, apparently a, a split 7-inch recorded by Finnish progressive rock band uh, On and uh, Rochester-based doom metal band Bizarro. And they did a store, they did a 12-inch, which was based on actually this Night Gallery episode. Now, I'm not going to play any of, it, any of it because of copyright, but um, almost certainly this 7-inch, uh, this well, you know, if you're a doom metal fan, full plate here, I'd get involved. Uh, I'm more of a jazz guy myself, but certainly... To, I mean, we we spoke before, and we do frequently, particularly on the website, about people who. It's amazing how even now, Sailing's work, and well, in this case, not Sailing's work, but the name under Sailing's work, um, still incites fantastic dedication in its fans, and I think that's something certainly to praise. Um, so, with this episode, there's a slightly different feel, but it feels great. It's got a good, it's got a solid core. It's well written, it's entertaining, and on top of it, it's actually, to be fair, despite its slightly crazy ideas, a little bit scary. Well, I can put a stop to that. brother's waiting right there you go that's our story for this week um next week we've got another one which is again an entire episode 
dedicated to one story and I won't lie, I'm finding this a little bit odd. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get through and we'll work through it. I know there's a couple of episodes of little bits and bobs in there as well to break up the story, to kind of, well, pad out the time, let's be honest. But um, we'll work, I'll work through it. I'm sure you're, you're more than capable of doing it. Um, if you want to get hold of me, please do. My email address is chris at twilightzonenetwork.com. If you go to our website, www.thetwilightzonenetwork.com, there's all links to our stories, Facebook, our Facebook page, our Twitter feed page, which is basically a feed telling you when all the new stuff comes online. And also there is uh, various articles and stuff, uh, Tom's Twilight Zone podcast, all this great stuff that we're trying to bring out all the time. Uh, you might have noticed I'm, I'm increasing the frequency that I'm bringing this stuff out now. Um, I'm sorry if you don't like it. Um, you know, we don't boss 20 minutes much, so I don't think I'm imposing too much. Uh, it's just uh, for me personally I want to get this done now and I'm really enjoying doing it and the focus and the frequency I think is giving me momentum and making the podcast better I'm really pleased with how this one's going anyway but we'll, I'm sure after the edit I'll be massively critical next week we talk about The Girl with the Hungry Eyes which is another one based on another short story it's, it, it's okay let's uh, not get too excited but it's, it's, it's pretty solid Uh But until then, take care and I will speak to you soon. Goodbye.